You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Yeah, if you'd like to follow along and read with me, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, And the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Hasahuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithredah and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city, They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonour, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers." You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Verse 17. The king sent an answer Tarehem the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. 
Uh, my name's Lee Diprez, and I'm one of the lay pastors here at City on the Hill West. And uh, we're also, Helen and I are involved in Roving Revs ministry, so if we're not here, we're up, usually out around, roving around um, Victoria, helping other pastors out and relieving them in their preaching duties, just assisting them to, to keep going in ministry. Chad, I, I had a little phrase run through my mind before as you were sharing very intimately and personally with us. Uh, somebody said to me some time ago that in the world nothing succeeds like success. But in the Christian life, nothing succeeds like weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness, isn't it? Well, let's pray together before we get into the Word. Our dear Father, we thank you that uh, you are here and you're present among us. We thank you, Father, we have your word to so freely open and to study. We pray that our hearts might be open to what you've got to say to us. Because, Father, when we open your word and read your word and listen to your word, Father, you speak. You love to address your people. Help us this afternoon to be a listening people to you, a speaking Father. So, Father, speak to our hearts and minds and uh, let us not go away without being touched or moved or constrained. And, Father, let us not go away from this time without uh, having a, a love for your word and an appreciation of its truth. Bless your word to our hearts now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, today we're turning to, uh, uh, to Ezra 4, and it's part of the series, as Paul mentioned to us before, and uh, we're going to be looking at the matter of facing and coping with the discouragement which arises from opposition. As we'll see in a uh, moment or two, this chapter is quite different from the chapters we've looked at in the last few weeks. Recently, um, uh, Helen and I... Uh, undertook to um, put into practice a gift, a Christmas gift, which our kids had given to us. Uh, they gave us tickets to go to Hamilton to the musical, and uh, that musical concerns the founding father of North America, Alexander Hamilton. He was the right-hand man of George Washington. I didn't know a whole lot about, about this bloke, but I know a whole lot more now. So we went along to this theatre, uh, to the Her Majesty's Theatre, to see this musical, and there's a whole lot of dancers, uh, there's a whole lot of um, singers, and uh, there was a whole lot of actors. Uh, it was energetic, uh, and it conveyed a story. The interesting thing, the reason why I share it with you, because of, of the two acts... Uh, if you go to the theatre, you'll often have Act 1, and then you'll have inter Intermission, and then you'll have Act 2. Well, Act 1 at this particular musical of, called Hamilton was entitled History Has Its Eyes on You. So it was a de depiction of history, the history of, um, of Alexander Hamilton. Cleverly done. And then the second act came on after the intermission and it was entitled Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. Now, it was interesting, Act 1 was quite historical and it was a little hard to catch on to it, but then we got to Act 2 and then it became far more actional and uh, it addressed certain issues like the, an adulterous affair that Hamilton was involved in, uh, opposition that he had with a long-standing adversary by the name of Aaron Burr, and then uh, two tragic duels, one which saw his son being killed. And uh, the contrast between these two acts was quite noticeable. And that's what we find in the book of Ezra. When you look at chapters 1, 2 and 3 of Ezra, it's like this is the memoirs of Ezra and this is Act 1. But then you come to chapter 4 and you come to Act 2. And it's more actional and uh, it's far more confronting. In these chapters, in these early chapters of Act 1, you see God's providential intervention and his great grace in uh, calling people into action. He stirs up the heart of this pagan king, King Cyrus, and then he stirs up the heart of the Judeans. 
and get some uh, satellite to get back and rebuild the city, the city of Jerusalem, and rebuild in particular the temple. And Coy uh, shared with us last week about how there was such enthusiasm and such happiness and such togetherness uh, as they went back to rebuild the temple. And the first thing they concentrated on building was the altar, the altar of sacrifice, because they realised that it was all important to know the forgiveness of God and it was all important to be right with God. So to make sacrifice was so essential and so pivotal to their relationship with God. Now, the Jews, prior to going back, had had 70 years to think about uh, all this and uh, why they were going back and uh, the need to go back. And uh, in that 70 years, you would have thought that in actual fact they would have seen and come to appreciate that to, uh, to integrate worship is not a good thing. It doesn't pay off. Uh, they had a lot of integration. There's been uh, an incorporation of various gods with the one true living God. So, in all of that, that was their background in going back. But can you just imagine for a moment today the optimism, the delight, um, the enthusiasm, the energy, the togetherness that would have been amongst these people? After 70 years in exile, getting back to rebuild the temple, this focal point of worship. The sad thing about chapter 4 is that the people entered into retreat and shelved progress. And it all happened about because uh, of the opposition that came to be uh, brought against the people. So what we want to see is that God is so good, he is so gracious, and he's able to support us and he's able to relieve us uh, when we face opposition. He's able to do something uh, for us along the way. Firstly, we want to see together that opposition comes and mounts and persists. This was a big deal, as we said before, a big deal for the Jews to get back and to uh, to start rebuilding the temple. And uh, it was so, so essential and so important for them to, to get a clear focus on the one true living sovereign God. And not to have a, a, a dualistic approach and not to have an incorporating approach of other gods. They were created for, as you and I are, we were created to worship God, to love God and worship him. And the Israelites, they were not just created for this, but they were chosen by God. They were set apart for this worship. And you know, the Ten Commandments are very, very specific. You shall have no other gods. What? before me. So they were given to singular worship. Now, Ezra chapter 3 and verse 3 does uh, give us a hint about that the conditions and the circumstances were uh, um, not all together. It says, despite their fear of the people around them. In other words, there was a sense of apprehension as they went back. How would the people, because some of them had remained back in Judea and in Israel and uh, in that whole region, and some of them had actually stayed and then uh, intermarried with some of the Assyrians, which we'll say a little bit more about in a moment or two. But as they go back, there is this apprehension, how are we going to be received? How are we going to be perceived in terms of what we're doing and what we're going through? And verse 1 tells us, so they commence the rebuilding of the temple and uh, as they do so, along comes adversaries and these adversaries are from Judea and Benjamin and they got wind of what was going on and so they claimed that they had attachments to the northern tribes. But they came from a region where the... Assyrian king, Eshardan, had actually directed them to go. So the king said, right, here are some Jews that are remaining back there in, um, in their homeland. The others have gone into exile. Let's send over some of our people and let's set up a new estate. Let's get a, let's get a, um, a new group going. 
And so that's what happened. He sent over these uh, Assyrians. They intermarried with the Jews. And so worship became a real hodgepodge. It became uh, an amalgam of belief. And uh, it was such an amalgam that uh, uh, the Jews said, oh, we, 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 we want to uh, maintain our heritage. We want to stick by what we've been uh, brought to know and brought to be. But uh, we need to accommodate the Assyrians as well. So what they did is they had Jewish family names and then for their children they gave them Assyrian names. There was one, um, one young lad was called Sambalat and uh, his name meant uh, the worship of uh, the Assyrian god Sin. So you can see it was not uh, a particularly helpful thing. Well, these... these uh, these um, adversaries came, they maintained that they had links with the Jews, and then they say, let us build with you, we worship your God as you do. Now, if you've been one of the Jews there, you would have said, oh, this, uh, that's quite generous, uh, here's this request being made, uh, here's this offer being made, uh, here's more people to join in the workforce. This is going to make the job easier. The problem was uh, what they stated and what they did were two different things. Uh, back following the fall of Samaria in 722 BC, some residents had remained, as we said, and they had integrated with the Assyrians. And while they worshipped the one true God, they only did it in part. They also accommodated other gods as well. But here they are, and they're coming and saying, let us build with you. We worship your God as you do. But it was only a half-truth. You know, the devil's into half-truths, isn't he? He doesn't tell the, the whole truth. He doesn't really get to the point. He just uh, he uses the power of suggestion again and again with us. Like with Adam and Eve, and particularly Eve. He comes to Eve and he says to her, did God really say? Over in, um, in Genesis chapter 3. Well, here were these people and they're saying, you know, we've got the credentials. We've got the credentials to help you out. Well, fortunately, a number of the leaders actually perceived that they, they weren't really um, being true to God. We need to appreciate that God does not welcome the matter of accommodation of other gods or the integration of other gods. We said that in regard to the Ten Commandments. But you also see it in Romans chapter 1, where it's interesting in Romans 1, from verse 18 down, which talks about the wrath of God being against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. But then it goes on and it talks about how uh, people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, they've begun to worship uh, gods that are man-made or man-invented. It's interesting how Romans 1 is all about the matter of worship. So the fact of synchronising other gods with the worship of the one true God is not acceptable to God. Now that's still going on today, the matter of syncretism. Uh, I remember being down at Altona as pastor and uh, I was a Baptist pastor there for over 10 years in the church and uh, at one particular point the Hobson's uh, Bay City Council uh, decided to have a multi-faith initiative. So they appointed somebody to actually approach the churches and invite them along to a meeting. So this person uh, invited all the Protestant churches along, the Baha'is along, and lots of other Tom, Dicks and Harrys. So we went along to this meeting. Well, it was a flop. Uh, it was empty, it was baseless, it was uh, gospelless, uh, it uh, lacked life, it was shallow, and it just beckoned the matter of compromise. I saw it as a total waste of time and left and disassociated myself from it. That is what is being 
that is what happens here. They come, they offer their services, they tell a half-truth, and then they say, let us build with you in verse 2. And it's interesting, in the translations of the Scripture, there is a very definite, a very definite refusal. The translators put it this way, what have we to do with you? It's no concern of yours. Or another translation, the New Living Translation says, you have no part in this work. Now, the reason why that was so was because... um, King Cyrus had said that the task of rebuilding the temple had to be done by the Jews themselves exclusively. It was not to be an amalgam of Assyrians and Jews. So we need to understand that here in this situation, the the Jews um, were given this task by Cyrus exclusively. The commission came from King Cyrus to them. The temple rebuild concerned exclusive worship, the worship of the one true and living God. And so we need to um, understand that this particular matter of um, rebuilding the temple needed to be done in accordance to the way it was set up. Now, this Samaritan offer was was a, a... a generous gesture, but it was also a menacing misrepresentation of an underlying objective that they had. You see, sometimes people say things on the surface, but they need—they mean another thing underneath. And in this case, they were saying one thing on the surface, and what they were saying underneath was that we want to obstruct, we want to call... We want to cause this building program, this rebuilding of the temple, to come to a grinding halt. We don't want to see it to go ahead. It's just like we see with Mad Vlad. You know who Mad Vlad is? Mad Vlad Putin? He's bombing the the life out of the Ukrainian cities and uh, its infrastructure and his mandate is to scare people to the point where they cease to resist, where they surrender and they become subject and welcoming of the uh, Russian demands. That was the underlying agenda here on the part of these, these Samaritans that came and offered, that they had an underlying agenda. So with the people of the land having their offer denied, what did they do? Well, they embarked on an on a, uh, even stronger campaign of ongoing harassment. The Hebrew text is quite helpful here because it says they adopted a two-pronged attack. One, of dogged persistence, and the second was a variety. So now they, were going to have a, they weren't just going to have one tack, they were going to have a number of tacks to get at the Jews to the point of actually stopping the rebuilding. So their strategy to cause disruption and discouragement went from bad to worse. They enlisted and bribed a bunch of councillors from the halls of the powers of Persia. And not just that, they got a letter going, as we'll see in a moment. And this particular tactic on the part of the, um, the Samaritans, it worked. Because if you read down in verse 24, it says the work stopped, and it stopped for 10 years. Now, we live in a world, we live in a world where we're a subject to the influence of the God of this world. I love what old Spurgeon said years ago. He said, uh, Uh, The God of this world, the devil or Satan, uh, he is on God's dog chain and he can only ever go so far. God's purposes are such, though, that when the devil sees them being outworked and uh, when he sees them being um, enacted, he sets out to cause disruption and to cause people to become discouraged and fearful. 
That's why we need to keep a steady eye. If, if we know what God wants of us and what he wants us to be involved in, we need to keep a steady eye on, on that particular task and stick at the plan. Stick at the plan and, and keep on carrying it out and do it with faith and courage and perseverance. Now, as we look at this particular passage, um, we, we see something else. We, we see the opposition can be very close at hand, but it can also be certainly lying up ahead. The opposition initially reports, uh, as was read to us before, um, it went on and on. It ranged over the reign of four kings. In verses 1 to 5, it concerned the reign of Cyrus. In verse 6, the reign of Exerces. And in verses 7 to 23, under Artaxerxes, and then in verse 24, it reverted to the reign of Darius. And finally, the, the temple was rebuilt under the reign of Darius. But in the meantime, this opposition was there. As we said before, it existed, but then it mounted and it grew. And uh, here is Ezra and he's talking about the opposition that they are currently experiencing but then suddenly he digresses and he jumps into the future and he makes mention in verses 7 to 23 of um, the opposition that's going to come further down the track. It's a bit confusing. You know, it's like watching a movie. You can watch a movie and uh, all of a sudden uh, the director or the producer does a flashback. You know, they, they flashback into the past. And you think, oh, uh, and if you're not concentrating, you wonder, is that, are they still talking about the real story or are they reverting back to what has, has happened? And it gets a little confusing. Ezra does the opposite of that here. He doesn't go back. He doesn't do a flashback. He does a flash forward. Verses 77 to 23 is a flash forward and he's talking about the opposition that's going to come. But he does that to show the unrelenting nature of opposition to God's work. I mean, this confrontation, don't think this is just happening over a, a number of months. This is happening over years. It goes on, in actual fact, for 91 years. It goes right on, right up to the end of Nehemiah. I think sometimes it's good to know what lies ahead, isn't it? I was chatting with somebody prior to the service and we were talking about just how people love to go to the stars. They want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen today or whatever. They can't stand not to be in the know. Sometimes it's good to know what's going to happen in the future. I'm not sure this is the case with Ezra though because Ezra is saying things that the opposition's going to hang around and it's going to get worse. So they write a letter. They write a letter to King Artaxerxes. This is part of uh, the upping of the opposition. And in the letter, they discredit the Jews and they picture them as being on the wrong side of the authorities. A letter is sent to Artaxerxes and the letter is quite cunning and quite clever because it's designed to actually press his buttons you know, of what concerns him. I mean, he's got people that have gone from Assyria and now are part of a new estate in, in Judea, in northern Judea. He's got that. He's got people that have, have gone over, over the river now and are rebuilding the temple. He's got more people back over there. He's got more possibilities of revenue, more possibilities of taxes and so on and so on. And uh, so they're pressing his buttons in the letter and saying, You've got, to take, you've got to keep control here. You've got to take charge. You mustn't let these Jews get out of control. You mustn't let them get up ahead of steam to the point where they're doing their own thing. You're going to miss out, King. So the letter was designed quite deliberately was designed to actually cause the temple to stop being rebuilt and uh, it was caused to, to become something like we see, which is an unlovely sight 
in the suburbs of Melbourne. I ride my bike around the suburbs of Melbourne and I come across these houses that are partially built, that are abandoned. You know, you have frameworks up there and the weather has gotten to the frameworks and the wood looks just grotty and it just looks like it's uh, unkept. And then you've got bits of plastic flapping in the wind and then you look a bit closer and you've got windows that are broken and the whole site is just abandoned. It's an ugly site, isn't it? Yes? Well, that's what these people wanted. These adversaries wanted. They wanted this site to be abandoned. So here they are, and, and not only are they just pressing um, Artaxerxes' buttons, but they're actually insinuating that the Jews are untrustworthy. They are building, it says in verse 12, they are building a rebellious and a wicked city. And... The insinuation actually involves the people and say, these people, you've got to watch them because they are a wicked people. Were they? Well, there was a whole lie being told. I mean, we see that too in regard to the war in, in Europe at the moment um, with the exaggeration and the labelling uh, and the, the propaganda I mean, Vladimir Putin's actually labelled the Ukrainians as Nazis. That's just an overstatement. That is just wrong. Totally wrong. Well, that's what's going on in this letter. It was a cunning, sneaky appeal designed to actually get the king on side, and it happened. They got him on side. And the letter was full of all this information, which was wayward information, which was wayward opposition. Mark DeVere, who's the, been the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. for a long time, gave some, gave some great advice in regard to this matter of wayward voices of opposition that come. He says, do not try to determine what is true by what is popular. Other religions like Islam may equate worldly success with success in God's eyes. As Christians, we don't follow conquerors like Muslims do. We follow Christ who was crucified. So we need to be those that uh, don't simply interpret truth on the basis of popular opinion. And there was a there was a popularising of opinion in regard to this letter that was sent their way. Now, as we said, opposition and is spoken of as being up ahead. It was a certainty. It was going to happen. More of it was going to come. But we know that uh, opposition can be also close at hand too, can it? Can't it? Uh, nearby to us. Discouragement and fear can come through our networks and our associates. People love to misrepresent us. People love to tell stories about us. People um, single us out on the factory floor or in the sporting change room or in the schoolyard or the university campus or in the news reports. And you especially see Christians being singled out in public street protests. And the opposition comes by way of suggestions and sneers and intimidation and innuendos and threats. It's nothing, uh, this is nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun. The opposition that the Jews experienced here uh, is opposition we experience in our day and age. But the opposition can come and keep coming and can um, be triggered to the point where we can become worn down. I know that from having worked in the, in the shearing industry and over the morning tea times and over the dinner times. You're sitting around and talking. They find out you're a Christian and then they target you. I used to have bottles of tea, cold tea, by my shearing stand. Tea is very refreshing. Cold tea is very refreshing. But they said it was a brown bottle and that I was a secret alcoholic and that a Christian shouldn't be an alcoholic. And away they went, and they worked me over for weeks. I had to give up the tea, go to water. But that's what happens. Opposition can come, it can be close and around about us, 
And we know that, I think, as Christians living in this day and this time, in this age, with all the political correctness and relativism and pluralism that is around, it's becoming increasingly hard for Christians to live in our current society and to take a stand and to speak up and to speak out in regard to what we believe. It's quite common to hear the call to abandon our unique Christian beliefs because of the belief in religious pluralism, which says there are many ways to God and they're all valid. Or as my brother said to me, and I've mentioned this once before, he said, oh, everyone to their own. That's pluralism. That pluralistic thinking is hard. But we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he's the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the only way to the Father. He's the only way for us ever to get to heaven. And we say there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It says that in Acts chapter two, uh, 4 and verse 12. But if we say that, we are immediately targeted and immediately called narrow-minded or bigoted. That's the opposition we face in our current society. It can be around about us and very, very near at hand. And it can get quite discouraging. Derek Thomas speaks about the matter of discouragement. He says it saps energy, cripples motivation and turns people in upon themselves. It's just what like COVID does, the COVID virus. But Thomas also says that uh, there's a way to deal with a discouragement that arises from opposition. And he says this is the way we should do it. He should, we should firstly accept that Christian living and ministry always involves trials and difficulties of all kinds. Bad things happen. The devil sees that God's work must be contested. The second thing is this, that we learn from the mistake of the Jewish rebuilders who allowed themselves to fall victim to discouragement. What happened is they lost sight of the goal of rebuilding and they lost sight of God. They wanted to be left alone and God left them alone. What they failed to do is look to God, that to the God who's able to do far more abundantly than what we can ask or even think. You know, if you read chapter 4 and the missing element or missing factor in chapter 4 is prayer. Where's prayer? Why didn't the people go to prayer in the light of the opposition that was coming their way? God's greater than all opposition, is he not? The third thing Thomas says that we should do, we should exercise faith when we're discouraged because faith will keep us going. When everything around us is saying, says stop, we should hang on to the fact that God can do something, that God can um, transform the situation and cause the opposition to be put to one side or to be dealt with. God is mightier than any opposition. Helen and I had the uh, privilege of going to the Warwick Nabil um, Christian Convention. Warwick Nabil, for your knowledge, uh, is out uh, is northeast of Horsham, out in the country. I was riding the bike one morning, and it was Good Friday morning actually, I was just going for a cruise around the town, and there's the priest, the Anglican priest, standing on the, on the footpath, waiting for his parishioners to turn up for the service. So I pulled right in front of him with my bike, found out he was a bike rider, so we had something in common. I said, I go to an Anglican church, I didn't tell him which one in Melbourne, and uh, so we got talking. And then I said to him, what time is your service on Easter Sunday? He told me the time. So Helen and I rocked up on Easter Sunday to his service. It's high church. We thought, oh, this is going to be so ritualistic, so dull, so, um, so repetitive. People are going to say words and just, it'll, it won't really, it'll lack life. We were utterly surprised, weren't we, do you? We went along to the service and the, um, I think the Reverend James Wood, who I met uh, on the footpath on Good Friday, and he remembered my name, 
and he, he made a point of remembering everybody else's name in the congregation. There was quite a lot there. Uh, this man, I believe, had had some Mexican jumping beans for breakfast. He's a man in his 50s, but he's a live wire. We heard the reports in the town. I say the Anglican minister, he's got energy and get up and go. So here we are at his service. And then we've got this service all mapped out and we're hearing from him, we're hearing enthusiasm, we're hearing conviction coming from him, we're hearing that he believes in the resurrection and the, and the transforming power of God. And then in the middle of the service, up he pops and he's going up and down the aisle with the congregation and he's singing the song, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And we didn't just sing it once, we sang it at least five times and every time we sang it, we sang it faster, faster, faster. And the whole congregation, old, old, young, everybody's up and doing the actions. He was just energised. But the point is that God... He believed that a, a God can do something. He can transform lives. That's what came through. And it, it engendered faith within us. And that's the very thing that these rebuilders didn't do. They didn't see that God could transform the situation. They didn't trust him. Now, the final thing we just want to note from the passage is that God's sovereign hand enables opposition to be overcome. With all the serious opposition that went on and how, however, were the Jews to successfully rebuild the temper? Well, the short answer is this, that God is sovereign and he moves and he's in charge and he's the Lord. And it's interesting as you go through Ezra 5, 5 verse 5 of, of chapter 5, and then chapter 7 and verse 9, and then particularly chapter 8 with verses 22 and 31, it's, Ezra speaks about the, the eye, his eye, God's eye, being on his people, and then he speaks about the hand of God being on those that are for him and his hand being on those that are against him. So God is right there. Despite the opposition, God is right there and he has, a, he has a plan and a purpose. He wants his house to be rebuilt. And it happens because he's sovereignly in control. And what Ezra tells us in chapter 4, he tells us that when God stirs people towards his plans and his purposes, he tells us that the devil doesn't like it. He doesn't like to see God uh, moving people. He doesn't see, like to see God progressing people. He doesn't like to see God uh, getting um, his promises enacted. And so he opposes it. He's the God of this world. And so he meddles and he hinders and he disrupts. And he used people in this situation to do that. Seeing God getting on with the job of establishing his church in the world gets up the devil's nose. He doesn't like it one bit. So he precipitates opposition. And sometimes and often that opposition is loud and proud and strong and it's deliberately designed to discourage you, to cause you to become despondent and to give up and say the Christian life is too hard. And we battle, we, we battle in this world, we, we battle with the world, the flesh, the devil, and we battle with sin. And we know that uh, it's not just personalities, it's not just customs, it's not just culture, it's not just tradition that we're up against. We are up against principalities and powers. The devil has his cohorts, the devil has his spirits, and they are constantly being used by him to get at us. What I'm trying to say is this opposition, which we see here in Ezra 4, this opposition is insidious and it is subtle and it is powerful and it can get to you. And you need God. You need to trust God. You need to have a faith in God. You need to be, um, you need to actually own uh, what 
we're going to sing directly in Martin Luther's great song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I won't read it out to you now. I read it out this morning, but note the third verse of that hymn. Note it in particular and know that God is sovereign, that he's in charge and he's to be trusted and he's to be known. Now, today, as Christians, we're not engaged in a real rebuilding program like these Jews were. Do you know why? Because we're already part of God's building. We already belong to God. And we don't need a building for God to be present. The Lord comes and dwells with his people, not in a building. He comes and dwells in our lives now. And the wonderful thing is that now, as Christians, we're not just built into Christ and we're not just building our lives upon Christ as being our true foundation, but we are now part of God's program and God's plans and God's purpose of building his church in the world. We exist to know Christ and to make Christ known so that his church might grow. I love the, the words of Matthew 16 and verse 18. They're Jesus' words and they bolster our faith. He says, I will build my church in the gates of hell and, and the gates of hell are some forms of the powers of death will not prevail against it. And it's wonderful to see God doing that in his world, isn't it? Look at China. It has an anti-God communist government and the church is growing despite what the government says. God is building his church. And the reason why it's happening all is all because of what Jesus has done in his death. J.I. Packer says, Jesus has triumphed over all forms and powers of death because he's put death to death on the cross. So when Jesus went to the cross, he subjected himself to the worst that opposition or that opponents could bring against him. He allowed the devil to do his worst. He allowed the authorities to do their worst. He allowed the people, the populace, to do their worst. He subjected himself to every dark and deceitful power and he subjected himself to the most deadly and deceitful opponent of all, the devil himself, and defeated them and defeated the opposition. Over in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 it says, he disarmed, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In Hebrews it says in chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 that he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How good is that? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it? That God has sent his son and his son has defeated his opponents and defeated our opponents. So that now as Christians, when we love and we know the Lord Jesus, we don't have to fear death. We can face death like a hero who goes home. We can face death as a warrior who has conquered. If you don't believe in Jesus, come and believe in him today. Trust him. Because he's a great conqueror. He's the one who can enable you to withstand whatever opponent comes against you. Well, there was Ezra. Chapters 1 to 3, we see Act 1. It's an exciting read. Things were going along well. There was great happiness, great energy, great desire to rebuild the temple. Things were going full steam ahead. And then you come to Chapter 4, to Ezra's Act 2, and it's such a dampener. The opponents come, they rise up, and the opposition comes, starts, and then it gets stronger, and then it continues on and perseveres for a long time, up to 90 years all up. 
Initially, the opposition is such that the workers get dis disrupted and then discouraged and they down tools, stop work and withdraw from the site. Ezra's chapter here, or God's word through Ezra, is an encouragement for us to learn from our trials and opposition. What lessons can we learn from the near century of opposition? I think we can learn that we are culpable in how we handle and react to opposition and trials. We can learn that opposition is a reality of life. We're going to face opposition. We have to live with it. We can learn that the devil is behind all opposition as a deceitful disruptor. And we can learn that our opponents and opposition are necessary instruments to call us back to God. Uh, Derek Thomas says, learn to see trials as God's burrs. Learn to see opposition as God's burrs placed in your bed to keep you watchful and awake. Learn to view them as part of the promises of your gracious Lord for this world, making you long for the world to come. Learn from these trials, ponder them, interrogate them and submit to them. And then there's one more learning, I think. And that is that Jesus has experienced trials and opposition in our place, in going to the cross and dying. He has experienced what we experience and he's emerged victorious over it all. So, it can, so we can actually take up the word at the end of, of chapter 8 of Romans. It says, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life or opponents or anything will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So keep living and walking by faith, won't you? The beautiful thing is that we, as we continue to go through the book of Ezra, we're going to see that uh, God is in charge and uh, he does achieve his purpose. He does get his house back in order. He does see it as a place that is rebuilt and it becomes a place where his people gather, where they worship, where they praise and where they witness his glory and where they practice true and proper worship. Praise God for that, that we have that uh, overarching this chapter 4, which is somewhat discouraging, but encouraging at the same time because it encourages us to trust God. May God bless us in trusting him. Our dear Father, we do so thank you for your word. Lord, your word can be quite sobering. It can actually bring us to a point where we just appreciate the realities of life, of what we're up against. But Father, thank you that uh, your word tells us that if you are for us, who can be against us? So Lord, help us to be people that go out from this, um, this building today encouraged to trust you, to know you and to appreciate that you are greater than any opposition because you've shown that and demonstrated that particularly in the Lord Jesus, your dear son, in his great victory over death, over the devil and over the world and over the flesh on the cross. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us. In his dear name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.